it does happen occasionally that a retailer orders or secures a certain lot of product for them. And then when it comes actually to the to the moment of purchase, the retailer hops off and disappears. And then the farmer has saved all of that product for them. And then they, they don't buy it at the end of the day. But at least we find out about it. And we can have a con- tough conversation with the retail about, about the situation um, because they, the retailer is certified as well. So they are integrated into, into the system. I think it is... I think this whole supply chain logic is really important for certification because you can only serve the farmer to a certain extent if you only certify his or her farm. I think you need to look at the whole supply chain and and take and take the brands and the buyers and the retailer on board with you. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from Nora Taleb, who works for the German farmer association, Naturland. In Europe, unlike here in the US, many trusted farmer-led organic associations have created add-on labels to organic to help increase transparency for food purchases and push the movement further. Nora and I discussed this, the importance of farmer-led movements, and much more about the various differences in the organic movement between Europe and the U.S. But before we dive in, please leave a rating and review of our podcast as it helps us grow our audience. Now let's get back to the conversation between myself and Nora Taleb of Naturland in Germany. I'm talking today with Nora Taleb from the German Organic Certification Body Naturland. Hi, Nora. Hi, Lindley. <laughs> Nora and I met uh, when the Real Organic Project first formed. I had the opportunity to travel to Europe and to learn a little bit about the various add-on labels in Europe because that concept is, is common in Europe, but it's not in the U.S. It's, it's very new here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you describe the organic landscape in Europe and the role of add-on labels? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so I guess the North American and the European organic movement took somehow different terms um, to the regard that in Germany, for example, but also in other European countries, organic farmer associations had already worked on the development of organic standards and they already had launched those standards and they had private labels out there to certify products um, for organic when there was no national organic regulation or no European organic regulation as we have over here. Um, And when the European Commission um, published the um, organic law for the European Union, the farmer associations in the different European countries continued with their work and continue to work on their standards to further develop them and to promote organic agriculture, to to offer training for farmers and to build supply chains and build market cases for organic um, farmers. And this is what we do until today. Um, Yeah, so we are add add on labels, add on certifiers, you could say. The same thing was true in the US. We had MOFCA, we had VOF, we had CCOF, we had lots of certification bodies as well. But the big difference, it sounds like that we conceded to the fact that the USDA standard was going to be the standard across the country. Um, I'm wondering how Europe had the foresight somehow to realize that that would just be a floor 
that, that you would want to have this, uh, this concept of continuous improvement is part of organic. And I'm wondering, you know, is that, is that part of the European definition of what organic is there as well? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that this is part um, of the definition um, of organic agriculture in Europe, that a standard has to evolve and develop over time. Um, but at the same time, I would say agriculture is a really cultural thing. At the same time, in agriculture, we have so much of the cultural heritage of the different places because agriculture is basically the interaction of human culture with the landscape. And I think farmer associations in Europe were just not ready to give this away over and hand it over to, to the governments. And this is why until this day, we have different associations that have standards and certify in the different um, European member states. So we have the Soil Association in the UK, for example, Kraft in Sweden, um, just to give you a few examples. Um, and they are all like, they are so strong because they tell their own story and they have their own pioneers who developed the movement. So I think, I think this is one of the reasons probably why, why we didn't go away and didn't hand over all of the power to the European Commission. I thought it was really beautiful too. The meeting that I went to in the Netherlands was uh, from, there were delegates from each of the add-on organizations and they came together to talk about, you know, what was important to them, what they were working on and how they could collaborate on some of the ideas. So that idea of collaboration um, was really strong between the different. Um, so they're not called certifiers there. What would you say the best word for, for them is just add-on labels? We call, I mean, the best name I would say to describe the organic certifiers, as you said, or the organic um, movement that does certification as well, is, is, is um, we are organic farmer associations that also certify. This is kind of the definition that we, that we prefer, I would say. And the other thing that you said about collaboration among the different associations, I think this is so important. Important. Um, it's one of the most important things about the organic movement, globally speaking, that we need to collaborate, and um, because there's so many challenges in in organic agriculture, um, both in the practical implementation, but also in terms of market access and 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 shaping the landscape. So collaboration is really important. So this idea of a farmer-led association, farmers' association, that. Is, is probably the way things used to be, that the farmers were very involved. And now it's very top down, you know, what the rules are. And so could you tell me a little bit about the governance of Naturland and how it really is farmer led? Yeah, sure. So the governance of Naturland um, is basically that the highest decision making body within our association is the Assembly of Delegates. And the Assembly of Delegates is a group of farmers that were democratically elected by all the Naturland members. So, um, and it's important to note that only farmers can become delegates and the assembly of delegates, they basically make the rules. So whenever we, the staff members, for example, want to change something about the standard or we want to start a new collaboration with a new retailer in Germany or elsewhere, it has to pass the assembly of delegates and we can't do anything basically without their approval. And I think this, this is a really important component of empowerment. Um, to the, for the farmers. And this is basically also how I think that organic farming should be. And um, this, is, this is where we went wrong, I, I guess, that farmers were more the subjects of a legislation, of a rule, rather than the, the, the creators of these rules. And this is why the farmer associations like Naturland are so important, because not only do they help to further develop the standards, but they also provide 
a counter power. I don't know what the right word is in English, but they kind of rebalance the power a, a little bit of the European Commission there, I would say. How uh, strong is the um, industry in terms of defining the rules in the EU? Is it, um, do you feel like the basic organic label is called uh, what there? Bio? The, or just the EU leaf? It's, yeah, it's yeah. bio. Is, is that one affected by industry more so than, say, all these add on farmer led uh, labels? Um, so I think I need to repeat that piece because, so the question was whether, um, whether the national organic regulation in Europe is more affected by industry than the yeah. farmer led labels, right? Okay. Yes. Yep. Um, so I would say definitely that is the case. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it is as strong as in the US. Um, I've come to know the US landscape a little bit. And um, what you, I mean, you have the OTA, the Organic Trade Association, and, and we don't have such a strong lobby group on the European level because every European member state kind of does their own lobby. And we have that on the national level. So we have a kind of OTA on the German level and they do intervene um, in Brussels for the shaping of the organic regulation. But we don't have this superpower of uh, corporate organic, I would say, that has a big influence on the, on the legislation. But I would still say that within an association like Naturland, it is even more so that the farmers really have the last word and not the retailers or the brands that we also certify because the retail and the, the brands that buy the wrong ingredients from the farmers or buy the product and trade the products and, and, and create beautiful products from them, they are super important. But to us, it is important at the same time that they don't yeah, take too much power and, uh, and shape our organic standards and decide how farmers should produce for example, but also you have to consider that not within all organic associations, there's no seats for brands and retailers, for example, in the decision-making infrastructure. I can just speak for Naturland when I say this is 100% farmer-led and within other associations in Europe, this may be different. So when, um, when the industry you know, has a power in the U.S., what's happened is um, a lot of the family farmers have really struggled to stay in business. It's really strong right now in dairy because there are so many mega dairies that are actually confining the cows, so we call them a CAFO, that are getting certified organic in the U.S. And all of the, you know, there's 500 organic family farmers in Wisconsin, for example, and there's only six certified organic entities in Texas. And they have more cows and produce more milk than all the 500 family farms in Wisconsin, and they're marketed under the same label. And so as a result, our, our family farmers are going out of business. They're folding. I'm wondering, you know, are, are family farmers struggling in, in the EU, or in Germany? or um, And if they are, I'm wondering if it's at the same level that, that family farmers are struggling here, especially in different sectors. In dairy, it's, it's really problematic here. So do family farmers struggle um, in, in Europe? Yes, they do, definitely. I mean, I would say it's the same story. 
what you call CAFO, a farm of that scale would probably not be certified organic um, in Europe. Like, I don't know of a single example um, of, of, of that mass scale. But there's definitely a lot of pressure, especially on dairy farmers, to grow and, and become big. And it is almost, I would say, impossible to run a small dairy farm these days in Germany, for example, if you're not organic. Organic is probably the only chance that you still have to, to, to be a small farm and have a market. And even more so when you are part of an organic association like Naturland, for example. Um, we have a couple of years ago created an add-on label um, to our Naturland organic label, which is Naturland Fair. And one of the first um, farmers or group of farmers that joined for that certification program and label was actually a dairy cooperative in, in southern Germany in the Alps. And the average size of um, herd, uh, herd size that the farmers there have is probably um, between 20 and 30 cows. Some of them only have 15 cows. It's, it's crazy. Um, and they can still um, survive. Maybe they don't do farming full time. Probably some of them also have another job on the side or one family member has. But at least selling to their cooperative under a Naturland Fair label provided them a secure market place so that they could continue with their work. But consolidation is a huge problem here as well. And then also what you have to consider is that within Europe, um, we have a free trade agreement. So basically products can come in from all different areas um, of Europe, which exerts more pressure on the German small farming infrastructure. Could you talk a little bit about what it means to be certified organic as a dairy. You're saying that those large dairies just don't exist there. Why do you think that is? Are the standards preventing it? Is it is it just a different land base or, or why why haven't they entered organic in so Europe? So why don't we have any CAFOs in Germany at the moment? I think A, it's a problem of scale. Um, it sounds stupid, and um, but I would say America is just so huge. You have those vast landscapes. Um, where you can build those mega stables also. And Germany is very densely populated. So it is a problem if you have a huge stable um, with lots of animals because it is viewed very critically by the neighbors and by the consumers. But having said that, we have mass animal production also in the poultry and uh, and, and pig uh, yeah, area. And it, it's... It is, it is happening, but it's maybe not the same scale. So your understanding, though, is that Naturaland actually has some scale limits for dairy. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. That's That's been a controversial thing here is, um, you know, whether or not scale is, you know, we should limit based on scale alone, you know. Um, and for dairy, it seems to be really obvious because you can only take so many cows in and out to milk and still get out to pasture. And so what's happened here is that pasture is considered an open paddock close to the dairy milking barn. There actually isn't really grass for them to graze on. And so that's how they kind of get away with um, being outside and then getting certified. And then they have the hay out there, but there's no way the cows can get in and out um, twice a day that many and, you know, still actually have grass to graze on. There might be some grass there. But if there's nothing to graze on, you know, they're, they're filling up um, with, we call them, TMR, total mixed rations, right after milking. 
So that's how they're getting away with kind of skirting the standards here in the U.S. Um, but I'm just curious. It sounds like in Europe, you've actually, you know, at least in uh, natural land standards, you actually said, you know, here's the limit. With this number, it's not physically possible to to graze the cows. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, um, regarding the limit of, of the stables and what is possible under organic regulation, I think it's not only a question of grazing, but it's also a question of the residuals and manure that a farm produces and yes. this is one of the reasons why we have limitations there as well because a certain area and surface can only cope with a certain amount of of um yeah fertility that comes out of the farm and um so we have what is interesting between in in the natural land system we have created corporations between farmers that produce animals or have animal husbandry and um, pure vegetable and um, or horticulture producers we yeah. would say yes and you showed me one of those interactions when when i visited that yeah was really beautiful. so so the dairy farmer can can supply some of his fertility and manure to the vegetable grower for example and this is all within a circular economy within the natura network and this is how we know that the input that goes into the farm is also from a secure source because everything was audited but one more sure. comment that i wanted to make regarding grazing because I think it is important maybe also for um, the audience in North America to know is that um, traditionally organic dairy was conducted by by some of the I can speak for Germany was conducted by some of the organic pioneers in in the Alpine region where you have lots of snow in the winter and they were one of the first to apply organic principles and take the dairy cows out for grazing and and take and and make sure that they have the best best feed and and reliable traceable feed and some of the people who founded Naturland and, and joined the association early on were actually dairy farmers. But it was not possible for some of our farmers um, to have their cows out grazing all year long um, mm -hmm. because, because of the climate conditions and also because many farms were actually right in the center of the small villages in this alpine region. So I'm not talking about um, vast big landscapes like um, you maybe have in um, Wyoming, for example, this is not the kind of landscape that you have to envision if you, if you, if you think about organic dairy in Germany. Um, so the challenge is that our farmers have until this day, and this is why grazing is a huge question within our association at the moment, is that those stables and barns that have been part of an ecosystem of a village and, and the farmer being an important person in the community, they didn't have the, the, the spaces often to have their dairy cows out and grazing all year long. What they would do is that they would have the young youngsters and also the dairy cows out um, on the lawns in the Alps. Um, up, so to have alpine grazing in the summer times, but in, then in the winter, the cows were down in the villages most of the times. So this is a current discussion that we have within Atulan that we try to solve because we don't want to check out some of those pioneers who, who helped to found Naturland almost 40 years ago because they're still in business and they still run their small farms. But we also need to find a solution that, that lives up to our standard, both in terms of animal health and animal welfare, and also yeah, n providing nutritious, balanced um, food to the dairy cow. So, it is a challenge that we are working on um, right now here. And the situation in, 
in, in Germany and the US, I would say it's very different in the dairy sector, but that there's a lot of pressure on small farms, definitely. Yeah, and the same thing happens here. We have a lot of farmers that are certified up in Maine, for example, where the winter is long and the, the fields are frozen for several months out of the year. And so then, you know, the standards are a little different because they, so there's a minimum of 120 days that you must graze um, in the U.S. Uh, for all organic. Um, but we're already, you know, as a farmer-led group as well, uh, the Real Organic Project is already talking about, okay, so in the winter, you know, what is the best way to raise the cows? And a lot of the um, farmers are having exchanges about uh, composting beds so that the actually it's really quite comfortable to, um, you're, you're not like up against cold metal and hard stone and things like that. And they're actually on top of compost and they're putting down, um, you know, fresh hay uh, daily and sometimes rototilling a little bit, the, the bedding. And so, you know, just the importance of the regionality of the standards, I think right. is so beautiful. And, and also, you know, we did visit one of those dairies that was right in the middle of a town when I came to see you. And they were... Um, mowing fresh grass and bringing it to the center of the town. And I mean, how many cows was that? There were there were only 30 cows or something like that at that dairy. It was a very different scale. You know, we're, we're talking about managing manure and, and bringing feed in for, for just a few cows as opposed to thousands. So I really appreciated the importance of the culture in defining the standards. Um, and I think that's that should be true around the U.S. too. And I think that's the problem with just kind of a basement floor standard that the USDA has had and not being able to to go beyond because then we can really talk about the intricacies of the local area and have those farmer exchanges for what the standards should be. So I appreciated that that Naturland yes, and had also, that. And also a standard is not, I think there's often a misconception among consumers as well that they believe that a standard is a very fixed thing and this is how it goes and this is exactly what you have to do. It, organic agriculture doesn't work like that. And what I love so much about my work and about Naturland, I have to say, is that we we really include the farmers in the development of the standard. So in Germany, for example, we have an organic advisory service. Um, this is people, most agronomists, basically, that accompany the farmers um, and help them to interpret the Naturland organic standards and, um, and also visit farmers um, new farmers, for example, who want to join the program and every Naturland farmer gets visited by their personal uh, advisor at least once a year. Often it's more times and they have their cell phone numbers and all of that. And for mm. the further development of the standard, we also closely collaborate with with our advisors. So with this advisory organization, because they are out there in the fields daily with the farmers. And this is super important feedback that we need for the further development of the standard. And a standard is always changing and growing. And as agricultural practice improves or not improves, but further develops. And as we have and as we bring in new research findings and, and science and, and 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 also climate change is a huge thing that makes us reconsider some of the standards that we have. Um, and we need to think about providing solutions for some of our farmers, especially farmers in, in the southern area. So we also um, have members outside of Germany and southern Europe where water is a huge problem and also other areas of the world. Um, we have members in on the African country, continent in Asia and, and, and America, South America. 
Um, so yeah, climate change is definitely something that will impact our standards even more in the future. And, they sh and it should, because we need to find answers also to the challenges within the standard and not just tell farmers what they're not supposed to do. Right. And it seems like the standard has, has improved over time for natural land and for um, USDA organic, it has weakened. And so that's that's the whole reason why I think add-on labels now are be, we're talking about them in the yeah. US. And, and the nice thing is like for us, I don't feel like it's scientists or the staff necessarily am always to say the standard needs to be stronger. Like we need to be more strict. We need to in, in, like insert that rule and, and this rule. It's also many times the farmers who, who um, realize that that something is wrong in the system and or that they fear that the reputation of Naturland might um, be in danger and the reputation to this label and to, to, to what the association stands for is so important to our delegates that it's oftentimes them um, who, who, yeah, who, who offer or who come along with ideas about things that should be changed in the standard. And this is really important, I think. Yeah, I think the role of farmers is huge because what happened in the U.S. is that the National Organic Standards Board, uh, there were five slots for farmers out of 15. Instead of, you know, for natural land, it would have been all 15. And even then, in those five positions, um, some of the farmer slots were being given to kind of uh, industry oversight positions, but they would say that they were a farmer because, you know, maybe they interacted with farmers or something like that. And so it just really became that that farmer voice was really diminished at the National Organic Standards Board level to the point where the they didn't even really understand what organic farming was anymore, what the meaning was. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about what organic means at, in Europe and for natural land as well. If someone asks you, well, what what is organic? What would you say? That's an interesting question. So what is organic um, for Naturland? I would say for us in, in our association, it is definitely a cultural system. Um, organic is something that is created and made by the farmers. Our farmers are stewards of the soil. That's that's a terminology that we have used from the early beginning. They and they take care of the land. They give back um, nutrients to the soil. They care about their communities. They care about their animals, um, and they want to create transparency in the food system. I think this question of transparency is really what the organic movement is about and, and should be about. And um, yeah, I mean, oftentimes you hear that saying that organic is more than the absence of chemicals and synthetic fertilizers. And I, I would have to agree, of course. I mean, this, anybody who is in organic agriculture knows that it's, it's not just the absence. And this is why I also don't like the terminology organic by default. So I'm, I don't know if you've... I, do you use this term in, in the U.S., organic by default? Yes, I've heard that. Okay. Right, right. It's, Go ahead and describe it. This is bullshit for me, you know, because oftentimes this terminology is used for farmers in the global south. You say those small-scale farmers, they're organic by default. They don't even know what they're doing, but it's organic because they don't have money to buy pesticides. No, it's it's not how that is. Most, most small-scale farmers live on the land and not only take a cash crop from that land, but produce a, diver produce a diversified agricultural system that feeds the feeds the family feeds the animals that they have it has to feed 
maybe um, the local market. So it has maybe it has to provide some products for the local market. And then in addition to that, if they have, the, if they have something left over, they sell it for export. And there's tremendous knowledge and skill in small scale family farming and that's why I really don't like the terminology organic by default because it diminishes the role of the farmer as a steward of the soil and as a steward of his his land that provides to his family and where he lives or she I should say yeah no and I think that's such a myth that we have created in the US that you know in order to get more organic acreage you know, we have to um, allow these huge um, operations in because then we have more organic and we have cheaper organic and we have to feed the world uh, right. this way. And that is such a misconception because, you know, what percent do you think around the world is actually, you know, feeding from small farms? I've heard 70% at least, something like that. So this this idea of industrial agriculture feeding the world, it's only 30% of the agriculture. Is that something you agree with since Natural Land is so international? Yeah, definitely. I mean, big ag can't feed the world. And there's lots of science that backs that information up. And I would say that the number, I've also heard the number that 70% of all our food is produced by small scale farmers and I would I, I that number is true like all the science proves that and there's so many crops that are available from small scale farmers um, and the reason why big ag is 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 so strong and is becoming ever stronger is really a it's really it really has to do with the global capital economy like and that's basically the only reason and it's easier to commercialize products if you have a if you have a producer co-op in, let's say, Sri Lanka, and they produce coconut and spices and maybe tea all in the same cooperative and, and on the same plots, it is a lot, it is more work, you could say, to make those products ready to be exported or ready to be sold because it takes more logistics and and it and it's more complicated because it's smaller quantities and you need to have cleaning and packaging facilities for all of the different spices and, and all of that. But if you manage to do that, and there's so many cooperatives in the global south who have created those systems where you have a highly diversified, for example, agroforestry system, where you don't just take the cocoa and commercialize it, but also take the pepper that grows there and the cinnamon um, and, and the ginger and manage to commit to, to get that ready and get it out to the market it has a beautiful effect also economically in that region and it provides so much more healthy ecosystems locally but also globally so small-scale family farming in the global south is is really super important like that's nothing more important than that i think and actually there's a term that we like to use for that we call this ecological intensification because it increases the ecological output, you could say, the, the ecosystem services per acre, as opposed to increasing only the economic output or the cash crop output. And ecological intensification is huge, and this is something that we as an association um, support with the farmers um, through training um, and sharing of information. But most importantly, our main job, I would say, is to get their products to the market because it's not easy for a cooperative with highly diversified products to find good and stable market partners. Yeah, there's so much there, so many questions. So um, I do wanna talk about the FAIR label because you're very involved in that, but I wanna go back first to the ecosystem services. Um, you know, beyond just not polluting the environment, 
Uh, what are some of the other ecosystem services that come to mind when you think about um, natural and farms? What are they providing for their communities? I would say it's definitely um, water, the, like providing healthy um, water to the, to the water cycle is a huge thing um, that is becoming more and more important. Um, oftentimes the cooperatives also provide training opportunities to the farmers. So it's not always Naturland ourselves who can go and train the farmers individually, but we enforce the cooperatives and support them so that they can carry out trainings for their farmers, for example. So increasing the knowledge also about the agricultural system um, that they have. And then having more diversified nutrition for themselves. So um, just to give you one example, we have a um, coffee plantation that we certify in Mexico. And this is one of the few coffee growers that is not a small scale project. Most of our southern products are from small scale farmers, but this one in particular is not. But it is still an agroforestry system because not in the Naturland standard, we don't allow um, the cultivation under the sun of coffee. By that, we mean it has to be a shade tree system. So mm -hmm. there need to be other trees within the coffee plantation in order to comply with the Naturland organic standards. And of course, in, a, in the plantation, you have many workers that work there. And a beautiful effect of the of the trees that we have in the coffee plantation is not only that they provide shade, not only to the plants, but also to the to the workers. But oftentimes these are fruit trees. So um, we have bananas in there, for example, or other fruits that the workers then can eat, for example, for their um, for their lunch. So. Um, and all the ecosystem effects of that biodiversity, right? You've got birds that maybe are exactly. allowing, you know, predation on some of the pests and just the biodiversity really keeps, um, mitigates the need for any chemicals. Exactly. Yeah. So much more resilient, highly diversified systems. And, and, and this, again, as you said, then reduces the need for external inputs to manage that farm. But it's still, I mean, pest pressure and disease pressure is a huge challenge also in diversified systems, but if you do it well, and this is where the training comes in, um, if you do it well and if you um, incorporate an agroforestry system, for example, that is locally adapt adapted with local varieties and that is tested, um, it can become so much more resilient to pests and diseases. Yeah, and I think one thing that I notice on my farm and I hear other farmers talk about is when you have such a diversified system and you have naturally um, bad years for certain pests and diseases. They kind of ebb and flow naturally. And when it's the year of the aphid or the grasshopper or, you know, whatever fungal disease, that's, it, it tends to be pretty specific to a crop, these, these outbreaks. And when you have a diversified system, you're not gonna, you have some resilience there. You're, it's okay. You don't have to, you know, rely on these awful chemicals to control that pest because you know you've got 20 different options for what you can market that year exactly. and you just don't market that one thing yeah. but i don't think we talk about that enough that and that that seems like it's a loss but it, it you know like it's inefficient or something like that maybe you would want to copy or, or not copy um but comment on uh that idea that organic is inefficient and um, you know we need a higher yields per acre and all that stuff in order to feed the world that maybe there's inefficiencies in all this biodiversity that's a really interesting question um, 
Yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that an organic, like a highly diversified organic system is inefficient. Um, not at all. I mean, it's, it is like you said, there are more different varieties produced per acre. So it is maybe not as efficient in a in a logic of the economic rationale where you try to squeeze as much out of a certain acreage for a short time and then you just leave the land and go somewhere else. This is what big ag is, is doing in many cases. Um, how I, I guess I would probably answer with a with a counter question. How can a system that is made for serving the family for the next decades and replenishing the soil and giving back to the soil and keeping it fertile, how can that be inefficient? It doesn't make sense. I think this rationale of like economic efficiency is really a short-term view on the on the organic system and um, yeah one other thing that I wanted to mention is a huge challenge that we do need to consider though with highly diversified agricultural systems is the market I mean there has to be a market and there has to be an organic market for the crops and this is a challenge that I see with many of our farmers outside of Germany. Because in Germany, we have huge demand for organic products, also locally, even more so locally. Um, and especially after COVID, I mean, local consumption and production is is huge right now and, and organic, luckily. It's so great. Yeah. But um, so if you look into countries outside of Germany and outside of Europe and probably outside of the US where there's no local organic markets for the products and you can't export everything, it becomes a little bit more difficult because if the farmer does not get his or her appreciation for the additional effort that he's putting into his farm, um, do you know what I'm trying to say? So there has to be a market for the products. That's that's right. really important. And this is where we come in as a label and as a certifier. And, and this is what differentiates Naturland from just a, a, a certifier by like a legal certifier by by the government for example that is just there to certify the standard we connect farmers to potential buyers and connect buyers to the farmers at the same time so we often have um, brands that want to produce a multi-ingredient product and they need nutmeg or they need cinnamon or they need a certain ingredient and then we go out and and into our network and and see where we can get that ingredient from and then we share the list with all of the farmers that we have that we know that can provide that product. So, um, yeah, this market connection is really important. Sorry, I think I went a little bit off topic. No, it's great. I do want to dive into what FAIR means because mm -hmm. in the U.S., FAIR tends to mean um, just that the, the, the workers were paid well. Right. And I, I want to talk about what FAIR means as a Naturaland add-on label, but also the social standards that are just part of the Naturaland label. Yeah. So I'll let you dive into that a little bit. Yes, yeah, so I would love to speak a little bit about our social responsibility standard and the Naturaland FAIR standard, um, which are part of our ecosystem, you could say, of our Naturaland ecosystem. So within Naturaland, within our standard, Social responsibility, which basically means that the ILO conventions are um, covered and the UN conventions for human rights and children's rights and indigenous people's rights. Um, this is all part of our organic standard because 
for us, you can't really separate organic or ecological sustainable and sustainability and social sustainability because it really goes hand in hand. And it's also, I would say, what the consumer expects. The consumer, they don't want to buy an organic product where slave labor was involved. And even though slave labor sounds like this doesn't exist anymore, it, it does. I mean, maybe not in Germany, but there's definitely situations of precarious work that we also have in Germany in the slaughterhouses, for example. But And then there's countries in, in the global south, Western Africa, for example, where certain forms of forced labor are really a reality in child labor as well. So um, to us and our association, as I said, it is really important to to see that social and ecological needs to go hand in hand. And this is why in 2005, we implemented the social responsibility standard into our organic standards. So all of the Naturland certified supply chains on the level of the small farmer, on the level of the bigger farm, and then the, the processing and the trading and the retail, it all went through an audit and verification of our social responsibility standards. So... Um, Yeah, because because we need to care for the people in the same way as we care for nature. And you can't create a healthy ecosystem by exploiting people at the same time. It just doesn't work. It's, yeah. That took a little while, didn't it? I mean, was that something that you implemented right away? Or did the farmers kind of take some time before they realized that was important? Yeah, so how did Naturland implement the social responsibility standard? That's actually um, a nice story um, to tell. So Naturland started as a German association in 82. But quite quickly, the first international members joined our association. So for example, the first organic tea that was ever certified with an organic standard was a Naturland tea project in Sri Lanka. And we converted this tea garden to our organic standards. This was before there was any EU organic regulation for, for any product. And we converted this tea garden in collaboration with a German fair trade company. They are called GEPA. They are quite big in Germany. They are a purely fair trade um, organization that only source fair trade ingredients. And they had worked with this tea garden and they wanted it to be certified organic. So this is how we came in and, and, and then we worked with them and the tea became organic in, in 86. And after that, more and more international members from also from the so-called Global South joined the association and we became super diversified in terms of the people who, who are part of this association and the farmers, but also in terms of the products and production systems. And we started to be a little bit worried because we didn't have social standards as part of our organic standards at the beginning. And I would say that if it hadn't been for our international members and the need, like, like the responsibility that we sensed, the need for also looking at how people are treated and how workers are treated and maybe children or if children are involved in, in the production system, like it is very common in the coffee industry, for example, in Central America. Um, yeah, I think if it hadn't been for these international members, then I'm not sure if Naturland, if we were purely a German association, if we would have a social responsibility standard, which is that strict and that strong as part of our organic standard. 
Could you describe a little bit the difference, um, what, what the FAIR label then sure. does beyond basic natural land standards? Sure. So the difference between the natural and organic plus social standard and the natural and FAIR standard is that only in our FAIR trade standard, we actually look at questions of fair price to the producer, um, reliable trading relationships. So does the buyer hop between suppliers and producers or does he stick to his to his supplier, to his farmer that he's sourcing from? Does the buyer support the farmer in training and uh, and improving his farm or his production system? And Natural and Fair also, for example, requires the buyer to do some advocacy work and publicity work for the benefit of of the of the organic farmers that he buys from. So most of the companies that are Natural and Fair certified have a tr have like an educational component where they educate the consumers and the public about the reality of farming um, from 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 where they source from. And also for Natural and Fair, we exclusively work with small scale family farmers, at least in the global south. Mm. And basically. I often like to say that fair trade is a certification of a relationship. So we look at the relationship between the individual farmer and his or her next buyer. Fair trade is not so much something that happens on the farm itself. It's something that happens in relationship with the buyer. And, and there are some rules regarding the fairness of that relationship, as I said, like transparency, reliable trading relationship, the prices. And then for farmers in the Global South, there's also a fair trade premium that they can invest into social um, projects in their area that they choose. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that is so needed here uh, in the U.S. And it, it was interesting. Actually, I didn't, I didn't really sense the conversation when traveling the country and visiting real organic project farms until I got to California. And there, a lot of farms are trying to differentiate themselves based on how they, their labor is treated. Because, um, you know, it's mig the migrant workers there are just, right. the farms are so much bigger and, and we, they really depend on the migrant workers. A lot of the farms actually changed the way, the, the crops that they grew in order to have a year-round work, um, you know, work for, all throughout the year so that their workers didn't have to be unemployed for parts of the year and go find work elsewhere. So that was part of it. Um, I don't know if that's something that, that you all consider as well, but that was a big part of, you know, how is your farm structured so that you can actually have regular work uh, right. for, for the people that you employ. But I also, um, so that, that has to do with labor. But then when I went to Florida and because there are these massive um, hydroponic blueberry farms that are popping up and getting certified organic down there, uh, it was really affecting the markets for the soil grown blueberries. And, um, you know, I, I think you, you were able to see the presentation that uh, King Grove Farm gave on what it's like to work with the brokers. And there, I feel like Naturaland would not allow any sort of relationship like this, where the brokers come in, they don't guarantee a price, they don't guarantee how much they're going to sell, but they make them basically sign if they're going to sell any. And, and the stores don't even work with the farmers directly. They only work with these brokers. So the brokers have so much power. And so this is just, and, and then, you know, they get a check at the end of the season and the farmer has no idea what that broker sold their product for. And they just get a check. There's no proof of, of you know, any of the interactions that happen between the retailer and the broker. 
So the farmer basically has no power because they, they really can't get into the marketplace without them. And so I feel like that is so much needed in the U.S. is, is the, uh, this fair add-on. And, and for consumers to understand that fair means so much more than uh, labor standards, it also means how the farmer is treated in the marketplace. Right. And what I, what I think is a beautiful aspect of fair trade as well is at least how we practice it at Naturland, that it's not only about um, the standards, but again, it empowers the farmer to speak up about his or her situation. And since we are an, since we are an association, we get a lot of feedback from farmers if ever a Naturland market partner is treating them in a bad way. And I'm not saying mm. that this is never happening. It does happen occasionally that a retailer orders or secures a certain lot of product for them. And then when it comes actually to the to the moment of purchase, the retailer hops off and disappears. And then the farmer has saved all of that product for them. And then they, they don't buy it at the end of the day. But at least we find out about it. And we can have a con tough conversation with the retail about, about the situation um, because the, the retailer is certified as well. So they are integrated into, into the system. I think it is... I think this whole supply chain logic is really important for certification because you can only serve the farmer to a certain extent if you only certify his or her farm. I think you need to mm -hmm. look at the whole supply chain and and take and take the brands and the buyers and the retailer on board with you and and make them an associate or yeah, a complicit. I don't know if that's an English term but Right. And that whole idea of certifying the retailer, that is missing here. And so when we talk about, you know, requiring of the farmer, do you have, you know, a fair marketplace? It's like, well, no. And I have absolutely no control over that. I wish right. I did. I wish I had a contract for my product for the three months that it might be available. But because, um, you know, USD organic is the only option, you know, there's there's actually really no differentiation, you know, from my local maybe soil grown organic tomatoes versus a, a supplier from Mexico, a hydroponic supplier that can supply year round at a cheap price. I just I can't get into the marketplace and there's no oversight of of the retailer or even the ability for the consumer to make a choice there. Exactly. Right. Because maybe the consumer would prefer to buy my local product, but they don't even have access to it on, at the retail level. Yeah, regarding the question of who has the power in 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 the supply chain and in in shaping the organic system, maybe I I really it's difficult for me also to make up my mind because on the one hand side I think consumers have great power um, over over shaping the system and demanding the product that they want, but the first organization or the first entity that creates demand from the farmer is his or her buyer. And in most cases, this is not the consumer. In most cases, this is a trader or the retailer who chooses to buy from this farm or from that farm. So if we can get the retailers and the buyers involved into our mission and educate them about the reality of farming and about what kind of farms we want for our future generations to, 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 to exist, it is super powerful, I think. And the consumers, they would take it happily. But consumers, unfortunately, also often happily take the cheaper product if they can. So I think that retailers, traders and buyers of agriculture products really need to be trained and educated about the huge role that they have and the power. And yeah, we need to get them involved. They need to be part of this.
I feel like the consumer takes the cheaper product because maybe the imitation, um, at least this happens in the US all the time. I don't know if it's present in Europe, but um, the the industry is really good at copying our messaging. They will use the terms right. family farming. They will put pictures of small, cute family farms with like, you know, a cow on pasture. And that's not the reality of what's happening behind the scene. And so I think the consumer wants to make the right choice, but there's just too many choices out there and they don't want to pay more and be fooled. I'm wondering kind of how, um, if that's happening in Europe, um, you know, are, what are, you know, I guess there's a lot of trust behind Naturland and we need to get something like that in the U.S. where the consumer really trusts the whole process and when they see that Naturland label, they can, they know they're not getting fooled. And uh, is there anybody out there trying to copy, uh, you know, what Naturland's doing, the messaging that they're doing? Um, you know, we have a situation here where there's Fair Trade USA and Certified Fair Trade, I feel like. It's just there's so many labels and some are better than others. And it's just so confusing to be a consumer. So maybe talk a little bit about that um, confusion and, and what are some of the best labels that consumers can feel confident in, in supporting. Mm -hmm. So the question is how, how to deal with consumer confusion in the marketplace where there are so many labels out there and so many promises that both label holders or label owners give, but also the industry gives, right? Yes. Um, I think it is a challenge also for us. One of the advantages that we have is that we have such a long history. So we have we are 40 years old, so many of the critical organic consumers that have consumed organic long before it was hip and trendy already know Naturland and they are maybe until today um, educating the or some of the pioneers that also educate other consumer groups, for example, and, and, and work in organizations that, that do educate consumers. And... But I would say ultimately also for the younger generation, the fact that we are a farmer association that certifies and that advocates for organic farming that shapes policy on a national and European level, that creates transparency, that tells the stories about the farmers, this, is, this all is something that young consumers also really get and what makes us unique is that we are a farmer association and there's many labels out there and it is so easy to create another label you just copy a standard or i mean if you have the money it's really easy to to start another certification program and and, and put a label on it and and roll out a huge marketing campaign and people will probably buy it but if you are an organic movement that is brave enough to be political at the same time, and this is what I love about the Real Organic Project, this is a political question. It has to be a political question. Um, so if you are this movement that was created by farmers, and in our case, even though we, have, we are 40 years old, is still run by farmers, this is unbeatable. Like you, you can't buy that with money. And, and the consumers do understand that. And also the industry appreciates us for the fact that we have maintained the power with the farmers and we will always will. I don't see that Naturland in 10 or 20 years or 30 or 50 years will ever allow the participation of industry players within the decision-making of the association. This will, like it will never happen, I, I, I can't imagine. Wow, that's beautiful. And you've done such a good job at explaining to us, you know, what is needed and how important the role of that farmer governance is. 
and you know just two years old you know let's hope that we can use you know your advice and and stay that way we in europe are definitely cheering on the real organic project what you have created in the last two years is amazing despite all the difficulties and all the yeah all the all, all the struggle you've faced over there and big ag and big organic ag is huge in in the us so you have some pretty big um yeah, how to say, uh, opponents there that you are battling and not even battling. I mean, you're just facing them. You're just staying there and, and say, hey, we are the organic movement and, and this is not our rules. This is not why, why we started. So I think the Real Organic Project is a super important contribution, not only for the North American movement, but for the whole organic sector. Because one thing that we didn't talk about yet is this hydroponic issue, which I think is super worrying because under the... NOP and organic uh, under the NOP and EC um, trade agreement or equivalency agreement, it is possible actually that we have hydroponic organic products on the European market, which is something that is not allowed um, under the EU organic regulation. It's certainly not allowed under Naturland, but it's also not allowed under the EU organic regulation. So your work is super important not only for North America but for all of us in this in this industry. Yeah, I was almost embarrassed to ask the question because, you know, when you ask an organic farmer here, you know, what is the importance of soil and organic? It's almost a laughable. It's like the central core tenant. And, and it's true for Naturaland. When I went on your website, you know, it's had your goals, um, you know, and, and something so eloquently stated, I wish I'd written it down. It was like, our mission is to increase the amount of humus in the soil you know it's just like that is organic and so um yeah i thank you thank you for bringing that up that is one of the core reasons why we exist is because um maybe uh talk a little bit about the importance of um soil and you already have touched on it uh for for the organic standard in europe yeah i mean the importance of soil in the organic standard, I don't even know like where to start because like soil is is what is our foundation, everything that we build our standards on. And um, a hydroponic system is just unthinkable for us um, to have that certified organic. Like it's, I, we don't even know how that works. And it really also changes not only the ecology of the system because there's no ecology basically, but it also really changes the um, profession of the farmer because one of the most important jobs of an organic farmer, and, and, and this is also what Naturland farmers would say about themselves, is be stewards of the soil, take care of the soil, leave the soil better than you have found it and, and create a fertile future for the farmers that come after you for that, on that land. So if you don't have soil, I, my question is, what does farming actually mean? Or if you don't have soil, are you a farmer? Right, right. No, and I think there's just a missing uh, understanding of, of how organic farmers and uh, relate to sustainability because a, a hydroponic farm has to get inputs from somewhere. And, you know, a conventional hydroponic farm does it through synthetic fertilizers. Well, how is an organic farmer getting their nutrients? And, and, 
and what they're doing is they're taking soybeans and hydrolyzing them and that that becomes the fertility and so so there's so many missing links let's let's talk about the sustainability of that system you know they're they're um they're even using conventional soy so there's there's no standards around an organic carbon capturing uh system for the soybean input to begin with either so there's just so many problems there we just have so much work cut out for us in the US you've got a 40 year head start uh, over there and I just I so appreciate your willingness to share uh, everything that Naturaland does and has learned through the process and uh, your willingness to, to work with us and, and help us you know at least take the steps needed to get to where you are that's that's my hope I'm wondering if you have a vision for um, you know the future of what what's possible in in the U.S. You use this word organic landscape that Dave and I just latched onto that we loved. What do you mean by an organic landscape, and is is your hope to create something like that in the U.S.? Yeah. So, what is my vision for the U.S. Um, and also maybe a little bit the vision for the Real Organic Project? When I first met you, Lindley, and when I came to know about the Real Organic Project, I could instantly sense that you are onto something real and onto something that is going to become big and not because you maybe have the goal of this becoming a global movement, but because it is so needed and it is so right what you're doing. So I'm a total fan cheering you on on this journey. Um, To me, organic integrity has to do with the whole ecosystem or landscape that you need to shape and form around you. And this is why in one of the calls that we had, I I, I think I, I dropped the line that the Real Organic Project is not only building an add-on label, you are going to build an organic landscape of improved integrity. And this is, this is what our work as Naturland is all about because you can't just look at the problem in terms of I'm going to help the farmer, I will offer them a standard and a label, or you can't also solve the problem by just looking at the market and the retailer infrastructure. There's a whole system around our organic food system. We have the certifiers, we have the local inspectors that go and inspect the farm. The farmer needs to have organic inputs from somewhere. Those inputs need to come from a reliable, transparent source. Um, you, need to, you need to look at the whole supply chain. Um, you need maybe to strengthen organic, uh, the offering of organic training in a certain area so that converting your fields to organic actually becomes more accessible and more achievable to farmers for whom this is a new concept because they they are starting from scratch. Maybe they have not been farmers before or maybe they are taking over a conventional farm. So in your endeavor to build an organic add-on label, you will transform the organic landscape in North America. I'm completely positive about that and I'm super excited um, thinking about that. And I hope that we can have more interaction in the future and support each other because organic Organic and also the the food, the question of of food and and our future, this is a global question. We can't solve this on a national basis or on the national level. We all need to collaborate and work together. And I think you're doing an amazing job. And this is so needed. And especially in North America, I would say. 
Thank you so much. You're so eloquent, Nora. And I, I look forward so much to working with you and I appreciate everything you've done to help us get this far uh, at this moment. And thank you for your time today. I hope we can continue to do maybe uh, part two because there's so much more to talk about. Yes, you're so welcome, Lindley. And I really appreciate the interaction that I have with you a lot as well. And we are learning a lot from you at our end as well. And I think it's it's going to make us both stronger. Um, so this has been great and thank you so much for your time as well. And I look forward to engaging some more and good luck with everything. We cheer you on. We have oh, thank you so much. I heard just the other day, um, it's time for radical collaboration. And I do believe that's true. Just yeah. there's so many things that are kind of urgent right now. And, and I appreciate our radical collaboration. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks. All right, until next time. Okay, see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 36. Please join us next time for an interview with Dee Dee Piercehouse, founder of the Land and Leadership Initiative. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. Mm-hmm.